0: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the seventh episode of season 12. Before we get into the story, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit Did you know that Norway's flag has the flags of six other countries contained in it? Pause the episode now if you want to guess them before I name them. Okay, Did you do that? Probably not. Right. So the six countries in question are Finland, France, Indonesia, Netherlands, Poland and Thailand. Or Thailand. I don't know why I said Thailand. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Final quote of the day. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. That was said by Will Ferrell. Listener Gareth Preston requested this case via email. We're in the village of, and I'm going to say this, right, we're in Wales, so it's Gwysyllt, right? Gwysyllt. If you tell me that's wrong from Wales, which it probably is, I'm sorry, I've really tried. Gwysyllt. It's a village in Wrexham County Borough, North Wales, spelt G-W-E-R-S-Y-L-L-T. Gwysyllt. I'm sticking with that. I'm positive it's correct. It's located 2.5 miles north and slightly west of the center of Wrexham, 110 miles north of Cardiff, Wales's capital, and 163 miles northwest of London. Here are five quick fire facts about Guiselt. Number 1, Guiselt, sound daft saying it, was originally a township of the parish of Gresford and by 1833 had 834 inhabitants. It was eventually formed as a new parish in 1851. Number two, the village's name is stated to be derived from the Welsh word "gwysil," meaning camp or campsite, with the final letter T being common in the area's dialect. Number three, there's a mysterious gravestone in the grounds of Holy Trinity Church in Gwysyll, and the story surrounding it is that a man fell from the steeple and was buried where he landed. Some versions of the story claim the man was the church vicar. Number 4. Four young girls from the same family died in the village during the First World War after a German bomb brought home by a returning soldier, Private John Bagnall, exploded when he accidentally dropped it. The girls were 1-year-old Sarah Bagnall, 1-year-old Ethel Roberts, four-year-old Mary Frances Roberts, and seven-year-old Violet Williams. And number five, the village was formerly heavily involved in the coal mining and manufacturing industries, but much of the former land has since been reclaimed and is now primarily housing areas. According to the 2011 census, Gwisilt's estimated population is 10,677. What a mouthful. Now, although this week's story takes place in Wales, I deem it important to note that neither of the two people I'm going to be discussing are British. It's not that important of a point to make, but I'm still classing this as a British murder, given the fact it occurred on our shores. Plus, as with all murder stories, it's no less important than any others and is most certainly worth telling to honour the memory of the first person I'm going to introduce you to. If you head almost 8,000 miles southeast of Wrexham, you'll arrive in the Southeast Asian country of the Republic of Indonesia. Did you know that Indonesia is the world's largest archipelagic state and is made up of well over 10,000 islands, with some estimating there to be over 17,000? Indonesia was where a woman called Irma Tati Rogers was born in approximately 1966, better known as Tati, She made the long journey to the UK after getting into a relationship with a man from the village of Rossett in Wrexham. I couldn't find much information about her marriage or husband, and attempting to find out about her early life back in her home country was a non starter. All I could find out was that her dad, a man called Sabri Jalil, lived on the Indonesian island of Sumatra during this story's main timeline. Therefore, we need to jump ahead 10 years so the story can continue. After separating in 2003, Tati and her husband finalised their divorce in September 2006. The reason for the pair's separation seems to have been due to her husband leaving her for another woman, which will have no doubt crushed her. She'd uprooted her life for the man she loved so dearly, only to see her heart being broken within a decade. Regardless, Tati had made herself at home in Wales and was not going to let her divorce shape how she lived the rest of her life. Settling in a rented flat in Gwasild, she lived alone but had plenty of friends and acquaintances, all of whom spoke of her fondly and with high regard. Tati was one of those people you could not only open up to about anything, but she was punctual and extremely reliable. If you planned to meet somewhere, she turned up on time, if not slightly early. Her generosity knew no bounds, something her best friend Hannah Sabron could attest to. An incredibly loving woman, Tati had always dreamt of having a family, by which I mean kids and a husband. The divorce from her ex-husband left her alone and without a partner, so it was with great sadness that she appeared to have to accept that she would never have kids of her own. When Hannah gave birth to her first child, a daughter, Tati was incredibly supportive. The hospital where she gave birth was a few miles away from Tati's home, But given she was a keen walker anyway, she'd make regular trips to see the mother and daughter during visiting hours and always came bearing gifts. Tati liked to keep fit, so walking was one way of keeping in shape. Whether or not she could drive is something I couldn't confirm whilst researching her story. It's important for me to put across how well Tati looked after herself physically because it plays an important role later in the story when it comes to disproving the testimony of someone I will introduce in just a moment. By this point in her early 40s, Tati had no known medical issues and was in a good state of health, according to her GP. She had no underlying concerns and there was nothing hereditary to be worried about. The only thing I discovered that could have played a minor part in how healthy Tati was, was her supposed obsession with her weight and diet. I don't particularly like the word obsession in this context because it's subjective. So let's rephrase it. Let's say that Tati was diligent when it came to what she ate and closely monitored her weight for health reasons. I really don't want to give off the impression that she had an eating disorder because as far as I can tell, that's not the truth. Because she lived alone, it's difficult to understand what Tati did in her free time when she wasn't meeting her friends. Her movements and whereabouts are full of gaps for that reason, even regarding what she did for work. I know she was previously working in a dairy factory in 2004 for Saputo Dairy UK, known as Dairy Crest PLC at the time, but some sources claim she was out of work during this story's main timeline. And that about does it regarding her background due to the limited amount of information available. So let's now jump to the beginning of 2008. With the world beginning to return to a state of normalcy after that weird period between Christmas and New Year, when time just seems to stand still and nobody knows what day it is, Ty had arranged to meet Hannah for lunch. The friends organised the meeting via text message on Friday, January 4th, with it set to go ahead the following day. Hannah grew concerned almost immediately when Tatty failed to show up as agreed. It was so out of character that Hannah just knew in her gut that something was seriously wrong. There's no way Tatty would have bailed less than a day removed from organising the lunch, especially without prior warning and an apology. After trying to phone Tatty but having her calls ring out each time, Hannah headed to her flat. A similar outcome was reached. Her persistent knocking received no reply. Surely, Tatty wasn't out. The only place she was scheduled to be was at the lunch with Hannah, so it only made sense for her to have been at home instead. Was she sick? Has she suddenly fallen out with Hannah for reasons not known to her? Those were likely some of the many questions floating around in Hannah's head in this most unusual situation. Once back home, Hannah relayed her concerns to her family, who agreed that the most logical course of action was to alert the police and report her as missing. It's a common misconception that you have to wait 24 hours before reporting someone as missing. It's not actually true. Please be aware that you can make a report to the police as soon as you think a person is missing. You can do this by ringing 101 or by visiting your local police station. Only call 999 if you are extremely concerned for the welfare of the person. With the police now informed, they began making inquiries as to what Tati's last known movements were before missing the meeting with Hannah. They managed to secure CCTV footage from a Summerfield supermarket in Gwasild, which showed Tati entering the store on January 4th at around 20 to 7 in the evening, before heading back out with two full shopping bags 15 minutes later. A witness came forward on the back of the police's appeals to explain how they saw someone matching Tatty's description that night between 8 and 9pm, but where exactly that sighting was, I can't say for sure. Seeing as though the Summerfield tape offered vital evidence, the police appealed to businesses and people with their own private CCTV in the area to ensure they did not delete their footage from January 4th onwards. Detective Chief Inspector Wayne Jones said on January 16th, We've had a good response so far from the public, but we are continuing to appeal to anyone who may have information, no matter how significant, to come forward. Concerningly, Tate had left many of her personal effects behind at the flat before she disappeared. It looked like your typical lived in flat. Think TV remote on the coffee table, bills on the kitchen counter, etc. It hadn't been cleared out as if someone had left forever, or even left briefly to go on a trip. Tati was reportedly attending college at the time of her disappearance and regularly sent gifts back home to her friends and family in Indonesia, so it made a little sense for her to just up and leave. There were murmurs that she may have returned to Indonesia, as that was something she planned to do at some point, but her passport remained in the flat, as did her clothes and a fair bit of money. Inquiries were made with the Indonesian authorities, but there was no evidence to suggest that Tati had left the UK, never mind landed in her native country. Despite the police's best efforts, all attempts at locating Tati failed. The surrounding areas were searched and door-to-door inquiries were made, but nothing led to it progressing. A glimmer of hope came and went in mid-April when a 26-year-old man from Wrexham was arrested and taken to be questioned in St. Asaph, Denbighshire. It's not clear who the man was, but after a few days had been held, he was released without charge. No evidence could link him to Tati's disappearance, which is what it was still being treated as at that time. As the months ticked by and the search was scaled down, the case was reignited in December when it was featured on an episode of Crime Watch. At that point, detectives confirmed it was no longer a missing person inquiry, rather it was now a murder inquiry. I read that a reward of £100,000, 156000 in today's money, was offered for anyone who could provide information that led to either finding Tate or revealing what had happened to her. I'm sure many tips will have come in on the back of that episode, but nothing concrete appears to have stuck, as the police were still none the wiser as to what had happened to her or where she was. By the spring of 2009, over a year had passed since Tate was last seen on the CCTV footage. Several searches in numerous areas of Wrexham had been completed over those many months, but it wasn't until the police received a tip that the search narrowed in on an area of land near Erdig Hall. A National Trust property located just over a mile south and slightly west of Wrexham's centre, Erdig Hall is a grade 1 listed home, garden and estate filled with the stories of a family and their servants surrounded by fields and farmland. It looks like the sort of place that offers scenic walks and a chance to see some wildlife, but it's incredibly isolated. It's the sort of place you'd associate with being an ideal body deposition site. As excavators and bulldozers were brought to the area in preparation for a dig commencing on March 18th or possibly 19th, the police announced that the search would likely continue there for a good few days. Based on the tip they'd received, the details of which are not known, nor is the identity of the person who offered it, the police now believe that Tati had been murdered and buried somewhere near Erdig Hall. Specialist dogs and forensic teams were on the ground working in conjunction with the operators of the heavy machinery. Before long, most of Tati's clothes were recovered, with the only item missing being the black trousers she was seen wearing in the CCTV footage. The huge press publicity of the dig was pre-planned. Its intention was to make Tati's killer aware that they were narrowing in on her burial site and that the walls were closing in. They were baiting the killer and it worked. But before I explain how, let me first introduce a 27-year-old man called Lucas Respondek. 27 is the most common age given to him, so I'm going to stick with that especially as the man the police arrested a year earlier was 26, and I believe that was Lucas, but his age does vary from source to source. Some claim he was as old as 30, but let's not get bogged down with something so trivial. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Born and raised in Poland, Respondek moved to Wrexham in the mid-noughties in search of a better life for his family. His wife, Eva, and two kids remained back home in Poland whilst he earned money in Wales. The plan was clearly to earn enough money to allow Eva and the kids to come and join him so they could be reunited as a family. Respondek missed Eva dearly, but it didn't stop him from taking a shine to Tate when the pair met whilst working on the dairy factory production line in the summer of 2004. The cheese cutter was instantly drawn to Tatty and has gone on record to describe her as being a very attractive woman. He was adamant though that the pair did not have a romantic relationship and never slept together. Respondek would later go back on that statement slightly by admitting to having kissed Tatty just one time. When asked how his semen came to be found upon Tatty's mattress when it was forensically examined, He said they may have been in bed together once after a party, but he remained insistent that they had not had sex. The seaman had, according to him, got there after he and Eva slept in Tati's bed whilst they were searching for a place of their own. One of Tati's other close friends, Noforawati Rex, has gone on record stating that Tati and Respondek were perhaps closer than he liked to admit publicly she would regularly drive Tati to his house and was informed of all the goings-on after the fact due to the two women being close enough to be considered unofficial sisters. Tati supposedly wanted to try and break up Respondek's marriage, partly due to jealousy and partly due to the breakup of her own. Whilst over in Poland celebrating Christmas in 2007 with his family, Respondek received a text from Tati in which she probably wished him a Merry Christmas. It might have said more than that, but I'm not privy to the contents of the message. The plan was to return to the UK in January 2008, but Respondek decided to leave his homeland earlier than he'd agreed with his family, and he also didn't tell him he was returning. He wasn't a fan of flying, so instead he drove well over 700 miles from his house to Dunkirk in the north of France. From there, he hopped on a ferry, which took him and his car across the English Channel into the port of Dover in Kent, South East England. From there, he had another nearly 250 miles to drive before arriving back in Wrexham. He'll have been absolutely shattered after that trip when he finally got home on January 4th. Instead of heading to bed and getting some well-deserved rest, Respondek felt he needed to seize the opportunity and visit Tati at her flat. By all accounts, Tati seems to have known that it was coming, with one resource suggesting it was Polish food she was purchasing from Summerfield that evening when she was seen shopping on CCTV. Arriving at her flat between 8 and 9pm, Respondek drove her back to his house at Trinity Street, ostellin around three miles away. I'm not even going to try and say Rostellin correctly. What happened next is known only to Respondek, but the assumption is that he murdered Tati at his house at some point that late Friday evening. I'll come on to Tati's cause of death shortly, but before I do, let me explain what reaction Respondek had after killing the woman he denied being romantically or sexually involved with. Rather than phoning the police, he instead chose to spend the remainder of the evening playing a real-time strategy game called Plemiona. It was the Polish version of a game called Tribal Wars, which was very popular in Poland around the time of this story. Tati's lifeless body was lying on the floor in his house while he did this. He would later claim that he did not know that 999 was the UK's emergency phone number, hence why he didn't call for help. But you can also call 112 here, which I believe is a common number to call in various European countries, of which Poland is of course one. Don't quote me on the 112 bit though. His brain was frozen, he'd later say, and he had no idea what the right thing to do was, even though he would go on to claim he was innocent and had returned from showering to find Tatty collapsed on the floor. Remember, she was in extremely good health, so although you can't entirely rule out a collapse from someone in her condition, it would have been highly unlikely. Respondek feared that the dream life he wanted to build with his family would be ruined if the police came knocking and asked a multitude of questions. I'm not sure how good his English was either, because when he was questioned, he had to be done so through an interpreter. After playing the video game for a while, he went to bed and then woke up with his alleged brain fog appearing to have been alleviated. Thinking more clearly, Respondek decided he needed to try and cover up what he'd done and headed to the shops to purchase a few items using his credit card. CCTV footage from January 5th captured him purchasing a spade, some plastic sheeting. Gloves, a torch, and an extra large 135 litre suitcase. He is also said to have taxed his car, a Kia, to prevent him from having his whole cover-up operation thwarted by being pulled over for something as daft as driving an untaxed vehicle. After placing Tati's body inside the suitcase, which he placed inside the car's boot, he waited for night to fall before heading for Erdig Hall. Tatty's body was buried in clay, something Respondent wasn't aware of or perhaps he just didn't realise what effect that would have on her body. It meant that she would be preserved to a much higher level than if she'd not been buried in clay, which only helped the forensic teams later on when she was finally found. The position of Tati's shallow grave was not marked at the site, but its approximate location was saved in Respondix car satnav as a favourite, with the initials TT, meaning Tati, being used to name it. Heading home, he dumped the suitcase in a skip behind a Halford store on the way, whilst also leaving the spade at a nearby building site and dropping a bag of Tati's personal effects in a bin. The arrest in April 2008, assuming it was Respondek who was being questioned, led to him feeling the need to cover his tracks even more. After his first interview with police, he headed out to buy another spade and suitcase, but this time he used cash instead of his credit card to prevent a trail. He wanted to try and trick the police into thinking he still had those items should they come to his house with a search warrant. Let's go back to the police's digging efforts now and see how they managed to bait Respondek into revealing himself. Concerned at the amount of press coverage the dig was getting and how close the police were to finding Tatty's body, Respondek began secretly watching the dig from afar. What he didn't realise was that the police had set up a total of nine secret cameras many of which recorded his car driving slowly near the site where Tati would eventually be found on several occasions. They were effectively watching him watch them. Questioned later as to why he kept returning to the burial site, Respondex said he did so to pray. On March 22nd, 2009, he decided the police were getting far too close for comfort, so he made a plan to move Tati's body that night, once more under the cover of darkness. Wearing camo gear from head to toe, he attempted to move Tati's body that Sunday evening, but failed to do so. It was a task he thought would be much less laborious than it turned out to be, so after about three hours, he gave up. Knowing he now had no choice but to hand himself in, he reportedly phoned Eva and one of his aunts back in Poland to tell them what he'd done. He then spoke to a friend in a local church, Respondek was a Roman Catholic, who agreed to drive him to the police station to hand himself in. The officers were soon informed where Tati had been buried, which led to her excavation two days later. Respondek stuck to the story of Tati having collapsed whilst he was in the shower, but the prosecution would later insist that he had lost his temper with her, for reasons unknown, and manually strangled her to death. The prosecution's story was backed up by the findings of home office pathologist Dr. Brian Rogers, who conducted Tati's post-mortem. Dr. Rogers, who despite sharing her surname was in no way related to Tati, confirmed her cause of death as being due to a fractured thyroid cartilage. Her injuries were consistent with strangulation. It was possible that she died as a result of manual or ligature strangulation, or a kick, blow or stamp, but not a fall. Dr. Rogers also confirmed that there was no sign of any natural disease which could have explained her sudden death. Respondek's computer was seized shortly after his arrest and the findings were rather revealing. He had searched the Polish version of Wikipedia to get a better understanding of the words gnici and saprofiti, which apparently mean the act or process of decaying and creatures that feast on dead bodies and organisms respectively. At his first hearing on March 26th at Flintshire Magistrates in Mould, Respondek was advised of his charges. Murder, intending to prevent the coroner from holding an inquest into an alleged violent death, the unlawful disposal of a body, and the prevention of the lawful and decent burial of a body. He admitted to the latter charge but vehemently denied having murdered Tate. The decision was made to have him remanded in custody after his solicitor unsuccessfully applied for bail on his behalf. The murder trial began in October 2009 and took place at Mould Crown Court. Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones oversaw the proceedings. Further evidence was brought to the attention of the jury, including some semi-naked photographs of Tati taken on Respondex digital camera. Combined with the DNA sample I mentioned earlier from Respondex semen found on Tati's bed, it was clear the pair were romantically involved to some degree. The post-mortem findings, combined with the whole heap of other evidence I've mentioned, led to the jury retiring for just over seven hours before returning with their verdict. They found Respondek guilty of Tati's murder by a majority verdict of 10-1 to 1 on November 9th. I'm unsure why there were only 11 jurors in this case, six men and five women, there are typically 12, but that's the number I've seen quoted in multiple sources. As the police officers involved in the case continued to scratch their heads as to what Respondex motive was, none has ever been confirmed, Mr Justice Lloyd-Jones said in his closing statement, The premature and pointless death of Irma Tati Rogers will leave a permanent shadow over the lives of her family and friends. The effect on her family has been devastating, and you are responsible for that. The knowledge of the enormity of what you have done should shame you for the rest of your life. Your conduct throughout the police investigation shows you to be devious, calculating and a determined liar. The judge handed Respondek a life sentence with a minimum term of 18 years. The most recent information regarding Respondek comes from September 2010 when it was revealed that the Court of Appeal had rejected his appeal to overturn his conviction. Lord Justice Hooper, sitting with Mr Justice Owen and Mr Justice Roderick Evans, rejected Respondex's claim that a manslaughter verdict should be substituted for his murder charge owing to his mental state at the time of the killing. Lord Justice Hooper said, Looking at his immediate reaction, looking at the evidence he gave to the jury that he had absolutely nothing to do with her death, the jury would be entitled to say that that is the reaction and that is evidence of someone who has murdered, rather than merely committed some minor assault. And that was the story of the murder of Irma Tati Rogers. Thanks again Gareth Preston for requesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. This week's new reviews are as follows. H.D. New, left a five-star review on Apple Podcast New Zealand. It reads, Greetings from New Zealand. Stumbled across your podcast and have been addicted ever since. Love your well-researched and careful delivery style as well as your humour. I look forward to the episodes each week. I'd like to suggest the murder of Emily Longley. Cheerio. I've added that case to my list for you. Have to Fly, left a two-star review on Apple Podcasts Island. It simply reads, Didn't pronounce his words jordan armitage left a five-star review on apple podcast uk it reads hi pal i've been listening to you for a while now and i really look forward to seeing that you have a new episode out although i don't really like the interview segment so i just skip them love the way you produce this podcast please please never change it's absolutely bloody brilliant He wanted me to say that in a proper yorkshire accent i get it the interview's out for everyone fair enough skip them not a problem Colin C. L. left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts UK. It reads, Listen every week, and Stu's ability to recount these stories with such respect is second to none. Find the interview episodes so interesting, you should be proud of your podcast. You see, you like them, the previous reviewer doesn't. Each to their own. Finally, Pickle Mara left a four-star review on Apple Podcasts New Zealand. It reads, Great podcast both for the story and a taste of home. Living in New Zealand, but originally from Smethwick in the black country. Love the accent and references to all parts of the UK. Just enough detail and empathy with issues that are so sensitive and at times gruesome. Thank you for making our long journeys from our lifestyle block to the shops 40 kilometres away more enjoyable. Thank you HD New, Jordan, Colin and Pickle Mara for leaving those reviews. I'm sorry I have to fly. This is how I speak and I can't change that. If anyone listening would like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do that on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. I recently surpassed a 1,000 reviews on Spotify. Thank you so much if you have left a review on there. I really do appreciate it. Currently at 4.7 out of 5, which is class. So thank you, thank you for that last push to get me over a 1,000. It's a little accomplishment, isn't it? I love stuff like that. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes as well as my British Murders Weekly Journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways and you'll get some thank you goodies for signing up. Hello and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Abby Gambrell-Jones, Sarah Teal, Julie Morrison and my boy Hanji. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Thanks to Jenny Povey and my auntie Stella Kirkham for buying me some beers on there recently. Thanks, Jenny, as well. She tried to help me with the pronunciation of Gwasyllt. And Jenny, if I'm saying your surname wrong, then I'm useless. Sorry about that. Jenny said, love the podcast, and if you need some help with your Welsh pronunciation, I'm here to help. And I have been asking, but I still probably got it wrong. I really did try with this episode. And Stella said, Love the podcast, Stuart. Very well researched and interesting. Darling daughter is adorable. Your progress is astounding. Been meaning to buy you a coffee or two for a long time. Your Auntie S. Please continue emailing case suggestions to contact at BritishMurders.com or message me on social media. I'm a bit shit at getting back to people, I'm not going to lie, but I will eventually. And when I do cover your case, you will get a shout out for your trouble. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.